We're, uh, we're still in First Chronicles, uh, sorry, Second Chronicles 3 here, uh, just picking up at verse 17 and the pillars. He set up the pillars in front of the temple building, one on the south side and one on the, and the other on the north, probably on either side of the doorway. Uh, named the one on the south, Jachin, and the one on the north, Boaz. Jachin means he establishes, and Boaz means uh, uh, Boaz, in him is strength. The ba is in, the bo is in him, and Oz is strength, so Boaz, in him is strength. And uh, um, 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 I think a medieval artist came up with this one because we're also told that the capitals were globes, which means I don't think that the pillars were holding up a roof above, but they were just decorative out front, although some people have a different idea about that, but that's kind of a neat picture of how that might have been. But the dimensions here are about right. They were pretty fat considering how tall they were. They were quite hefty, and I don't think that they would have blown over. Oh, have you seen that flagpole up at the college? It's a section of a power line. I, uh, of a a cell phone tower, yeah. So it just—it's a flagpole that's, uh, what, f- five feet wide. It would not be my first choice for a flagpole, but it, I think it was free. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because if we go backwards, no, backwards. Um. All of these things were, well, in, in, in what way might this be considered to be law? God gave them the, 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 the directions and he followed them. So this is an example of God's word being followed and an example of how we might do it. You know, because like Moses building the tabernacle in Exodus, those, those paragraphs all end with, and they did it exactly according to the Lord's command. And now we have the same thing happening with the building of the temple. Exactly according to the Lord's command. It's going to be again and again. They, they did it the way the Lord said. How might that be the law as the, the, the third use of the law, the law for believers, the law as a guide? Well, did they bring all of their cardboard and garbage and half-used stuff? And No, they brought their best, Right. So they, they, that, that also is a, is, a, is a potential use here of a guide of how we do things. They got the, 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 the people who were the best at doing this to do it. And also as gospel, what does all of this point to? Ultimately, it all points to Christ. The, this is where the sacrifices would be made that point ahead to Christ. And this is done in a, in a perfect and holy way. Um, just as Christ is perfect and holy in every way. And although this isn't the clearest testimony of law and gospel, it's not a bad exercise to ask myself when I'm reading a, what might be considered to be a purely historical text here, um, as what here is law and what here is gospel. So thanks for bringing that up at this point. It's a good time to do it when we have a lot of class left and we, could, we, can, we can actually talk about it for a minute. So. Does that, is that, does that help? Um, C.F.W. Walther, the founder of the Missouri Synod, um, had a lot to say about law and gospel and about how we apply it and don't apply it. Um, and it, the book is called Law and Gospel. Um, and I think we have at least one copy in the library. I own two. I have one at home and one here because I use them. 
I'm in it all the time, uh, Walters. And he has a number of basic sentences, theses on law and gospel. I think it's, I don't know, 70, 75 theses on law and gospel. Let's go back to the different artist depictions of the pillars. This one is from a Masonic something or other, and it's pretty scary. I don't even want to guess. Um, this one is of the pillars just outside the temple and the smoke's coming out the front. A lot of artists uh, don't depict the temple as having any windows, but I think it probably could have had windows. Windows would have had a couple of uses. One would have been a better place for all the smoke to go from the incense and everything uh, like that. Uh, also, if you have an open temple like this, what do you have inside? I'm thinking of, as here at St. Paul's, when we have weddings and the mother of the bride insists on opening, propping open every door in the building. Birds and bats. Yeah, that's when they all come in. My cousin Julie's wedding was, was favored by a dove who perched on the altar above the bride. And my brother has never let me forget that he and I were singing in the balcony and uh, at a moment when I thought the organ was still going to be playing, but the organ suddenly cut out, just as I would saying, it's a good thing the bride's wearing white. <laughs> and that, uh, that's what everybody remembers about my cousin Julie's wedding. Yeah, so. All right. Sorry, Julie. Um. I was going to go over the law and gospel portion here, but we've, we've kind of talked about that. Uh, um, the law as a guide prompts us to live our lives um, in as godly a way as we possibly can. Um, salvation is revealed to us in Christ. Um, and there are times where the law may expose a sin. The question came up this morning. Um, if uh, in our current culture, things are a little bit different than they were even just 20 years ago. But currently, um, are blue jeans acceptable in worship? Yeah. Um, in fact, and, and why is that? Are blue jeans especially dignified? What are they? They're comfortable. And therefore, they're conducive to worship. Because you're, you know, they're, they're, they're not binding and uncomfortable and there's, a, there's more of a concern with people that I've spoken to about it in, uh, in, in being able to listen and not be worried too much about these shoes are too tight for my feet or this thing hurts or whatever it is or my, 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 uh, my um, uh, which aunt was it who complained um, on Easter Sunday that her, um, the pins holding her hat to her hair were actually jutting into her skull. She had blood coming out of her head Easter Sunday morning, and I thought, that doesn't seem worshipful to me. You know. Chapter 4, Temple Furnishings. He made a bronze altar 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, 15 feet high. That's a big altar. 15 feet uh, so what do they have to have? Some kind of ramp or stairway or a ladder or some way to get up there because the, the altar is not just there to stand there. It's got fire on top of it and it's burning. 
Um, and a 30-foot altar, that's from here to Joanne, right? How many fires could you have burning up there? We talked about this, did we, a couple weeks ago? Where I think it might have been as many as nine fires going at once. If you were to imagine each individual fire is about the size of one of our round tables, you could it certainly easily get four and maybe nine of those going up there uh, for different sacrifices and so forth. Uh, that's not a bad depiction of it. You can tell this is a Lutheran because what's behind the altar? Well, it's the bronze sea, but wow, does it look like a baptismal font, right? You've got some of those medieval Lutherans wanted to put, and what's, do you see the thing that looks like an upturned hat in the front? What is that, obviously? It's a collection plate. You know, there's, there's, uh, uh, there's very little here that we would question um, uh, uh, fire pans and hooks and things, but, you know, there, there wouldn't have been uh, 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 arches like you have in the back there, but. Uh, this is a good picture of what the altar probably looked like in its position with steps going all the way up to the top and everything. Um, if it, but if the top of it is bronze and there are fires going, I wouldn't want to be barefoot up there. Have you ever walked with tennies on hot coals or something that's been burning and things start to smoke after a while? Um, after my dad's paint store burned, couple of us got melted sneakers. He also made the sea of cast metal. The thing on the left is the sea, the bronze sea. It's huge. And let's just do a little bit of um, ancient Hebrew math here, if you don't mind. It was round and 15 feet from rim to rim. Could the word round also mean oval-shaped in Hebrew? Maybe. Rounded. Hebrew is, uh, is adjective poor, so it tends to use a couple different words to mean this, a couple different, or one word to mean a couple different things. So it was seven and a half feet high and 45 feet in circumference. Circumference, you would also say of an oval as well as a circle, though. So, but maybe a circle. Under the rim, figurines of cattle completely encircled it, one every two inches. All the way around the sea, these cattle were in two, row, in two rows, cast as one piece with the sea. That means that I believe the top of the, of the, of the bronze sea, on the, under the rim that came out like this, were rows of little bronze toy cows. So one row, probably with their hooves on the row below, kind of like that. Why cattle? Well, what was going to be sacrificed mostly? Oxen, that's the biggest, that's the number one sacrifice, are the cattle. So I think that's why you would put them here. I don't, th I don't know of any other reason. Now, uh, in 2009, a whimsical professional paper was written for the uh, Mathematical Association of America. That's what MAA stands for, along with that, what is that, a tetrahedron or whatever it, that object is. And uh, a man named Andrew J. Johnson called Solomon C. and Pi. Why would you be concerned with that? Because if you look at this verse closely, you have a diameter and a circumference. And therefore, could you calculate the value of Pi? You know, my question is, why do you need to? 
If you already know the diameter and the circumference, this was a finished object, not one that I want to duplicate. So why do I need to know pi here? But there, but people, but uh, uh, there, there are scholars out there who complain that Solomon didn't know pi. You know, and who cares? But uh, also, my question is, who did know pi? And when did the value of pi become learned in the world? You know, it's not like that's been known for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. Um, this is a pretty good depiction of what the bottom of it looked with 12 cows on the bottom holding it up. That's correct. I don't, I don't see the, 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 cow, the toy cows on top, but cows on the bottom, that's fine. But these are some attempts to find the first five decimal digits of pi between the years 1832 and 1879. In 1832, a pretty good guess at pi's value was 3.06250. In 1860, it was 3.14241. The next, uh, two years later, in 1862, which is the year of uh, one of the Civil War years, 3.14159 is pi. 3.14159265 is, you know, as you, as you carry it out. That's, that's pi. But then go down to the, 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 uh, uh, the far right-hand column, third from bottom, 1878, 3.2. So these are all attempts to figure out what is pi. What is that numeral that depicts the ratio of a, of a circle to its radius? Circumference, circumference to its radius? Diameter. Diameter. And, and, and part, of the, part of the problem is, what shape did the actual bronze sea have? Was it a hemisphere? Was it a cylinder? Was it, had, did it have a little bit of a bulge? I like the bottom three, like where it had an overhanging, here it says collar or a neck below a brim or a, a downward brim. The text seems to favor a brim that came down because it calls it like a lotus flower, like it's open, or like a lily, kind of opening that way. The, the author of this uh, particular paper back in 2009 says, it may very well be that the true story lies in a combination of these perspectives. He points out that in Jeremiah 52, we find out the Babylonians destroyed it, melted it down, and made it into, you know, whatever, pool cues. So who knows uh, what happened uh, to it and where it is. But whatever the resolution for the, this puzzle I'm reading now, what I find most interesting is that the chroniclers somehow decided that the diameter and girth measurements of Solomon's Sea were sufficiently striking to include in their narrative. That's a godly thing to say. That's, 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 uh, that's, that's a nice thing to say. It, it is almost as if they saw, as through a glass darkly, the abstract pie and could not help to record in passing this particular instance of a most curious geometric relationship. That's the conclusion of, the, of that paper that I found. So, does it make any difference? Not really. They made the thing, so it doesn't make any difference. But. The sea stood on 12 cattle, three facing north, three west, three south, three east. The sea was set on them with all their hindquarters toward the center. The sea was three inches thick. That's, uh, that's a span, three inches. 
Uh, its rim was shaped like the rim of a cup, like a lily blossom. So again, coming out like this. Our, uh, in, in church, all of our stained glass windows, every one of them without exception, has depictions of lilies. Those are those flowers that open up and bloom like this. Why do all of our stained glass windows have lilies? Oh, some of the little ones on way up on top might not have that, but why do they all have lilies? The resurrection. Yeah, it's a reminder of the resurrection. Easter lilies blooming and the resurrection. Um, it held 18,000 gallons. I can imagine somebody saying, Bob, it's your turn to refill the bronze sea. You know, yikes. Um, I think, I think our, our apocryphal Bob would be glad if it rained. He also made ten basins for washing and put five on the south and five on the north. The pieces of the burnt offering were washed in the basins, but the priests washed in the sea. So the smaller basins were for animal part washing, and the big one was for people hand washing. And I believe that there was, I've said this many times, haven't I, that I think there was a spigot on each cow. Like his mouth, you turn, like you turn his nose or something and the water would come. And it's a very simple piece of technology to have a bronze fitting where if you turn it then the then the then the holes match and the water comes out the one thing you want to do is what sometimes children forget shut the water off right sorry being the only child in the room i just had to you're not a child but he made 10 gold lampstands according to the specifications that had been given for them and he set them in the outer room of the temple building Five on the south and five on the north. More lampstands than in the original tabernacle, but it's bigger, it's twice as big. So he makes, and by the way, he multiplies it by ten because ten is a holy number of completeness. He's not violating anything. And God gave them the, the new directions for this thing that they're following. He made ten tables. How many tables were in the first tabernacle for the showbread? One. Now ten. Place them in the outer room of the temple, five on the south side and five on the north. He also made 100 gold sprinkling bowls. It's possible that certain sacrifices or precious things were brought and they put those on the table for a while. I don't know, like would a, would a little chest of gems or something be brought in there or something like that? I'm not sure. He also made the courtyard of the priests and the great enclosure and he made doors for the enclosure and overlaid them with bronze. The outside doors of the temple were bronze. Why bronze and not gold? We'll find out that the inner doors were all gold. What's the difference besides appearance between bronze and gold? Bronze is a lot harder. So therefore, is, I mean, it's not like there's a lot of protection here against an invading army, but there's at least protection against an ordinary thief. You know, against a gold door, you know, a mouse with a crowbar could probably get in. Gold isn't very, you know, it's pretty malleable. But um, he set the sea on the south side of the temple building near its southeast corner. This is an accurate representation of that. Sea on the south, altar on the north. The thing faced east, it faced the sunrise. That's where we get the word orient. How do you orient yourself? Literally, you face the east. In ancient times, that was considered the top of a map. 
toward the sunrise. So you orient yourself by, and, and, and anything that's not the orient is the occident. That's the west. That's the bottom of the map. Um, but they, they, the, in Jerusalem, everything faced east. Now, to Hurim, Hurim, notice the punctuation at the end of this verse. Hurim also made the pots, the shovels, and the bowls. So Hurim finished the work that he carried out for King Solomon for God's house. What's the punctuation there? A colon. Because I believe that we have here the, um, the receipt. He, Hurim gave Solomon, I've built this and now, time to pay. You know, that kind of thing. So we have here Huram's list of what he provided for the temple. The two pillars, the two globe-shaped capitals on the top of the pillars. Remember, globe-shaped capitals. I don't think the pillars held anything. I think they were freestanding. The two lattice works to cover the two globe-shaped capitals on top of the pillars. Lattice work was something decorative up there that we don't know anything about, but probably very attractive. And maybe that's where some of the gemstones went to be all sparkly and everything. And the 400 pomegranates for the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work to cover the two globe-shaped capitals that were on the pillars. I almost want to say that Jack built at the end of this thing as he goes over and over and over again. But um, so um, for the inside of the sanctuary, 100 pomegranates and then 200 for each pillar. That's a lot of clinkly, clunkily pomegranates, if that's what they were for. Um, but I think they were attached with the chains, so something up there. Kind of like uh, coconuts or pineapples or something up there in the air. He also made the carts. He made the basins on the carts. One C. That, there's a lot in that word, isn't there? That 1,800-gallon gigantic bronze sea. Um, and the 12 cattle under it, Huram Abi also made the pots, the shovels, the meat hooks, and all the vessels of burnished bronze for King Solomon, for the house of the Lord. The king cast them in clay molds in the plain of the Jordan between Sukkoth and Zeradatha. Solomon made all these vessels in such great quantity that the weight of the bronze was not determined. Why, why would you make your clay molds down by the Jordan River and not up near the temple? That's where the clay and the water was. And that's how you make... This, this mold is for... What is that object, do you think? It's an axe head, yeah. Solomon made all the furnishings that were in God's house, the gold altar, the tables on which the bread of the presence was arranged, and the lampstands with their lamps, which were to burn in front of the inner sanctuary, according to the regulations, he made them of pure gold. So these weren't overlaid with gold, they were just cast in gold. He also made the flowers, flowers? More decoration, I, you know, I, the lamps, the tongs of the purest gold. What would you use the tongs for? Well, what do you use the tongs for? It's so when I cook hot dogs directly on the grill of my oven, I don't burn myself except when my sons aren't looking, and I do, and you know, but do that use the tongs for that? And small dishes, and what would you use the small dishes for? Well, what happens to a sacrifice? You burn part of it, 
And if it's not a burnt offering, what do you do with the rest of it? Time to eat. Yeah, so the sacrificer and his family and the priest and his family have fellowship. They eat the meal together in small dishes. And the fire pans of pure gold for the entrances in the sanctuary. He made the gold inner doors for the most holy place and the gold doors for the front of the sanctuary. Did I miss a verse? Oh, 22, and the snuffers. Who here has been an usher? What's a snuffer? Right, it's that bell-shaped thing you snuff a candle. What's the number one rule of an usher with a snuffer? Don't touch the wick. Because it smushes the wick down too much. Yeah. Here, here on, in, in, at the bottom of verse 22, uh, gold inner doors for the most holy place, gold doors for the front room of the sanctuary. As I said, all the doors inside the holy place were gold. But the exterior doors were bronze, a little bit tougher. But once again, I think all the detail of the decoration leads us to the glory of Christ on the cross. Um, things, precious stones and things, that it's, it's the best we can come up with in, in human terms. Just, just, just to depict what's going to be fabulous about what happens with, with Christ on the cross. I, I, can I have you for one more minute? There was just an article put out uh, about um, taking into consideration post-traumatic stress disorder and um, 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 abuse counseling in our preaching. And uh, it was an article that came out of one of our professional magazines a couple months ago. And, and uh, it was a cautionary article because a lot of the people who are advocating this are actually suggesting that we avoid texts that might recreate traumatic events in somebody's life or that, and this is the, 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 the frightening word, push back against those texts as if we should find some other meaning and totally change the meaning of some of these things. And the author... I. Uh, was, uh, uh, I think he was a Concordia St. Louis graduate, said that that's, it's, this is not a good start to this whole practice. And he had some good suggestions for how to incorporate this in our preaching and teaching, but, but not to push back against the text and not to avoid passages, but rather to know how to, how to apply them in such a way that, that um, uh, is, is sensitive to people who have suffered abuse or have suffered terrible trauma, like especially after a war and things like that. See you next week. God bless you. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.